Now he has to decide, one, well, am I going to lead or do I just tap out? Yes, dear, whatever you want. Does he take the easy way out, say whatever he needs to say just to make peace? And then he goes out in the garage and plays with cars and tools and whatever to just stay away for a while. Does he go brood in his corner or does he say, all right, Lord, help me by the grace of God. I need to deal with this redemptively. I need to lead the situation so this all gets better. I need to lead us to a place of health and beauty and peace and love and joy, all the fruit of the Spirit in our marriage. Lord, help me to do that. Does he do that? Or does he become a beast? Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, one of the pastors at Cornerstone Community Church in Joppa, Maryland. And this is episode number five. So for today, the topic is, well, it's for husbands and wives. It's husbands and wives in Christ. Or if I can uh, zoom out from that a little bit, it's really going to be kind of like the broader effects of our fallenness on us in our marriages. So this applies to relationships, friendships, but especially to marriages. That's our topic for today. But before we launch into it, let me just say this. If you're liking the Grounded Podcast, it really helps us if you leave a review. So however you're watching, whatever platform you're using, would you please thank you for writing us a quick review? All right, enough of that. Back to our topic, husbands and wives in Christ, the broader effects of our fallenness on our marriages. So Let's go back to the very beginning of it all, back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3. So in chapters 1 and 2, before the fall, everything was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. And the text emphasizes this. We read in Genesis 1 and verse 31, this is on the sixth day, after God finished creating everything on the sixth day, and God saw everything that he had made. That includes, by the way, the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, and they're married. God saw their marriage. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, you need to know on previous days, he said it was good, it was good, it was good. But this time he says, it's very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So now you have the man and the woman in the garden. Everything's perfect. Everything's wonderful. There's no sin. There's no marital strife. There's no challenges going on between husband and wife. And it's all, the whole planet is very, very good. It's a perfect man married by God to a perfect woman living in a perfect environment with, with perfect everything on a perfect planet in a perfect universe. There are no tensions, no problems, no difficulties, no strife. Like, can you imagine? That'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? And in that perfect marriage, Adam was a principled, beneficent head. That is to say, he cared for her. He wasn't about himself. He was about, I want you to be blessed. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be built up. I want you to be satisfied. I want you to feel the love. He was a beneficent head. And we see that in quite a way, quite a number of ways, that he was indeed head before the fall. I mention that because some people say, no, headship and submission only began after the fall. No, even before the fall, there are quite a number of indicators in the text that even then Adam was head and Eve was to be his helper. So, for example, just to mention a few of them, we notice the creation order. He made the man first. And then he made the woman, and he made her out of his side and gave, gave her to be with him. Uh, he gave, God gave the man revelation. God gave it to the man to name the animals. God gave it to the man to name the woman. Uh, he was Ish, and she's called Isha. So there are many indicators that the man is to be the leader even prior to the fall. So part of the very goodness of that era was this. Adam was covenant head. And Eve was covenant, by covenant I mean the covenant of marriage, Eve was covenant helper, and it worked perfectly. 
Then came the fall. And there were immediate problems and immediate effects in the marriage. So, for example, on a small scale, what do we see happening right away after the fall? Well, we have Adam blame-shifting and telling God, yeah, well, it's the woman that you gave me. That's why I did this. He's really shifting blame to God and to Eve, but we're thinking about Eve here. It's the woman that you gave me. By the way, hint, husbands, when you shift blame to your wife, that's not a formula for marital bliss. Like, it's probably not going to be a good day the rest of the day when you do that. But Adam did that right away. But there's a larger and a more lasting and and ever-present problem, and that is this. It has two sides. It has the woman's side in her fallenness, and it has the man's side in his fallenness. So for the woman, here's what happened after the fall. Now she has to decide at any given time, will I be submissive to my man? Will I be submissive to Adam? Will I be submissive to my covenant head, to my husband, or... Will I buck his authority? Will I dig in my heels? Will I talk back? Will I push back? Will I make my own demands? And will I use some of the feminine tools that are available for her to make life miserable if she doesn't get her way? So the woman has to decide, will I do that or will I be a follower of his beneficent leadership and will I be a submissive wife? By the way, that word submissive four times in the New Testament, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Titus, and 1 Peter, the wives are to be submissive to their husbands. I'm not making that up. It's in the Bible. But the man also had a problem. Now that he's fallen, he has to decide, will I lead my covenant helper who is now a sinner and I'm a sinner, so there are now problems, Will I go ahead and be strong and stay in there? And will I seek to, even though it's difficult sometimes, will I seek to lead redemptively so our marriage becomes more and more God-honoring, more and more the way Christ wants it to be? Will I lead? Or when it gets difficult, will I tap out? Will I go brood somewhere? Will I say, that's it, I'm not trying to lead this thing anymore? Will I give up? Will I throw in the towel? Also, the man has to decide, if I'm going to lead, am I going to lead in a principled, godly, beneficent way for God's glory, for her good, for the good of our children, if God gives any? Or am I going to leave in a, in a, in a sinful and fallen and self-serving and uh, self-aggrandizing way? So the man has to decide that. So the woman, am I going to follow my man or am I going to use the tactics to get my way? The man, am I going to lead my wife or will I tap out? And if I lead her, am I going to seek to lead her in the will of God? Am I going to lead her in a way that's for her honor and for her good and for her blessing, for God's honor? So the text indicates that these conflicts will follow the fall, and we see it in part of God's pronouncement on the curse. So now we're looking at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, and we read, this is part of God's pronouncement, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, so there's one thing the woman will now experience, multiplied pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, now here's the part we want. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Genesis 3.16. Let me read that last part again. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. So now there's a contrary element that enters into marriage. It was perfect before the fall. It was always sweet. They were always in perfect harmony and agreement. But now there's a contrary thing that enters in because of the fall. And her desire shall be contrary to her husband. He wants that, but I want this. But he shall rule over you, Genesis 3.16. And that, my friends, is the root of much, much, maybe all marital conflict. Like that lies at the heart and the soul of so many things that can go wrong in a marriage. Now, we should understand that that, being part of the curse, 
part of what God declared upon humans as a result of our fallenness, we should understand that that lives right down to our day and all the way down to the second coming of the Lord and only stops when we go into heaven. So this continues. This conflict still goes on. It appears in all marriages, in all places, in all times, even in the marriages of believers. In other words, just because you've become a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that went away. No, that can still be very much present, so you want to be aware of that. Just as the pain in childbearing continues, so the contrariness in marriage can continue even for believers. Now, how do we know exactly what the text is saying? What does it mean by, uh, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you? Well, it just so happens that in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, we have the exact two Hebrew words, contrary and rule, and we have them in the exact in the exact same Hebrew uh, format, if you will, so we know they mean exactly the same thing. It's over there with Cain, with God speaking with Cain. Let me read it for you. The exact Hebrew construction, Hebrews chapter 4. So the result is, verse 5, God didn't receive Cain's offering. Cain brought God a cheap offering. The text says he just brought God an offering, whereas his brother Abel gave of the firstlings of his flock and of their fatty or marbled portions. But Cain just brought an offering. And so God rejected Cain's offering, and now Cain's brooding about that. And here's what we read, Genesis 4, 5. But for Cain and his offering, he, God, had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face, the King James Version says, his countenance, his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Interesting way of describing sin, isn't it? It's crouching at the door, ready to come in and pounce upon you, ready to get you. But then here's the part we really want. This is the same Hebrew words and construction as we have about um, Eve and Adam in the previous chapter. Its desire, sin's desire, is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So get the picture. Here's Cain. Uh, Sin has a desire for you. It's crouching at the door. It wants you, and it's contrary to you. It's going to try to get you to do things that you don't want to do. It's going to create fights with you. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So there's a power struggle in Cain's psyche, and God says you have to rule over this thing that's trying to master you. Now, that's exactly what we have in chapter 3 with the man and the woman. Uh, Her desire will be contrary to her husband, but he will rule over you. So the text means exactly what it seems to mean. Genesis chapter 4 makes that really clear to us. But now, digging deeper, here's some of what you need to know. This is to help you in your marriage. There are two things going on inside every fallen woman. Well, I'm sure there are many more than two, but here are the two we're talking about. There are two things going on inside every fallen woman, two opposite and powerful desires. One of those desires comes from creation. She has that desire because she's created by God to be a help who is meet for her husband, and God gave her certain desires commensurate with that office. So one is from creation, and the other desire comes from her fallenness and what her fallenness dictates she should be and do. So what do I mean by that? Well, from creation, what's in her soul? Here's what God put in her soul by virtue of creation. He made her to be man's helper. He put that in her soul. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit 
for him. She's made to be her, her, his help in, her, in the mission. She's made to be help. He's the head. She's the help. Also, she's made to be man's companion. Also, she's to be the glory of the man, 1 Corinthians eleven seven. She's to be the crown of the man, Proverbs twelve four. She's to be highly valuable to her man, Proverbs 31, 10 through 12. And so by creation, God built this into her. She's made with a desire to have a strong man who will love and lead and protect and provide. She wants that. There's something in her that desires that. And by, by virtue of creation, there is that in her which wants him to, which loves him to take that leadership role. In fact, she will only respect him when he takes that strong leadership role. She wants that. She wants him to lead. That's by virtue of creation. That's what's inside of her because of the way God fashioned her and made her. But then there's the fall, and now there's something else inside of her. Now there's a contrary principle working in her. And, and there's this part of who she is that's in her because of the fall. It comes again in Genesis 3.16. Your desire, this wasn't before the fall, this is now after the fall. Now your desires, the things you want, will be contrary to your husband. Uh-oh, now they are going to be fights. Now they are going to be disagreements. Now they are going to be problems. But he shall rule over you. He's supposed to be the leader in these things. So now there will be conflict. Now there shall be contrary. Now there will be problems. Now there will be disagreements. Now she wants to usurp his position. Now he wants to rule, and maybe not in a godly way, but in a selfish way, maybe in an angry way, maybe in a mean way. And so what started out before the fall is a beautiful, wonderful, amazing thing became something very difficult and sometimes very ugly. So in most marriages, here's how this might work. Might work. Early on, there will be a conflict. I, I, I have a memory of what I think is the first conflict Debbie and I ever had. It was not too long after we were married. It was a Friday night. I was working construction. I came home and I was starving. I wanted food. I wanted good food. Well, she had a job too. She had had a long day. And so she threw some hot dogs in a pot of boiling water and served us hot dogs. Now in my family, you didn't eat hot dogs. They weren't healthy. That's not good food. They have very little nutritional value. And she served up hot dogs. And I grumbled and complained about the hot dogs. And she took her, I, got, I made her so mad. She took her napkin and threw it at me and stormed out of the room. There was our first contrary thing. We both did some things that followed in that, but primarily me. It was primarily me. In most marriages, early on, there will be a conflict. That first conflict and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth are very important because they're beginning to set the stage. They're setting up a pattern for how will we handle conflict in our marriage? How's this going to go when we have disagreements? And sometimes here's what happens. The wife, because of that contrary principle in her, she says, I want to get my way in this. And if she wins the first conflict and the second conflict and the third and the fourth and the fifth, here's what likely happens. Here's what tends to happen. She says, all right, I got this figured out. I can rule this thing. I can beat this man. I can get my way. And she likes that. But at the very same time, here's something else that happens in her. It's terrible. It's tragic, but it happens. At the same time, she begins to despise him. 
She begins to lose respect for him because every woman, by virtue of creation, she wants a strong man, a man who leads well. I want him to lead well in our conflicts. I want him to be a strong enough man that he's able to lead us both to a good place. And he did that leading and he made it good. By virtue of creation, she wants that kind of man. And now she's figuring out, oh, I don't have that kind of man. He's weak. I can easily beat him. I've been beating him. We've just had five conflicts. I've won them all. And she begins losing respect. If he's too weak to lead her, she'll begin to despise him for his weakness. She'll exploit his weakness and keep getting her way, but she'll begin to despise him because of how God created her to want a strong man who's a strong leader, but how she's fallen, and now there's a contrary principle in her. Also, there's a, there's a situation for the man in this. There's a problem for the man. Now he has to decide, one, well, am I going to lead or do I just tap out? Yes, dear, whatever you want. Does he take the easy way out, say whatever he needs to say just to make peace? And then he goes out in the garage and plays with cars and tools and whatever to just stay away for a while. Does he go brood in his corner or does he say, all right, Lord, help me by the grace of God. I need to deal with this redemptively. I need to lead the situation so this all gets better. I need to lead us to a place of health and beauty and peace and love and joy, all the fruit of the Spirit in our marriage. Lord, help me to do that. Does he do that? Or... Does he become a beast, a bear, a crushing, angry, powerful, demanding, pushing, shoving man? And, and that just leads to gargantuan big arguments in the marriage. So because of his fall, he might fail to lead or he might lead but do it poorly in all of his fallenness. He might lead selfishly in all of his fallenness or um, he might lead well. And the marriage becomes more and more beautiful. So the husband has to deal with things and the wife has to deal with things. Will I be submissive or will I fight? Will I lead or will I tap out? And if I lead, will I lead in a principled way? So here's what I'm going to call a grab bag of observations. So we're in the part of this little uh, podcast now that's just a bunch of various observations. Here's an interesting one. In these United States, we are told by very reliable statisticians that in 90% of U.S. marriages, if you ask the husband and the wife who leads in your home, they say, he does. That's pretty astounding. In 90% of American homes, that's after one generation of feminism, a second generation of feminism, a third wave of feminism, and some have even said, well, right now we're in a fourth wave of feminism, and still after all that, 90% of American homes say, yeah, he leads. That's interesting. Why is that? Because that's the way God made things to be. That's the way God made things to work. And we don't need to get all into this, but this is how God fueled men and women. Um, one of the biggest differences between men and women and all responsible psychologists with oodles and oodles and oodles of studies, the best people on the planet, even though many, most of them are women and most of them would prefer feminism, but they all have to admit the largest difference we identify repeatedly again and again and again between males and females is this. Males due to testosterone are aggressive and females due to oxy, what is it? Oxytocin, oxytocin and uh, progesterone maybe are made to be nurturing. Interesting. Those two things really fit their roles. Think about that. But in the United States, 90% of marriages, he's head. Here's another interesting thing in my little grab bag of observations. I say this without fear of contradiction, though somebody will probably contradict me. 
in every society ever known in all of human history, things have been, well, I'm going to go ahead and use the word. Some of you won't like the word. Just hang in there with me. Listen to it. Things have been patriarchy, patriarchal. I know there's a lot of work about the patriarchy, the oppressive patriarchy nowadays. Just, just hang on and think about this. Honestly, in every group of people, in every nation, in every tribe, in every kindred, in every tongue, every society we've ever known, things have been patriarchal. What does that mean? That means it's been led by men. Somebody says, oh, no, we have found matriarchal societies. No, you really haven't. What you've had found, and let's use the correct terms, we have found societies that are, here's the word, matrilineal. What does that mean? They trace their lineage through the woman's family. They trace their lineage through the woman's family. But it's still the men who lead. It's the men who lead in the family. It's the men who lead in all kinds of other places in those nations, in every society. By the way, here's something I'd like to know. If we're all just the same, there's no difference between us. Any differences between us are only due to society's pressures and the way we were raised and so on. If we're all the same, how did men pull that off? How did men pull off being the ones who did lead in every society ever known in all of human history? Well, it's because we're not the same. It's because these things are deeply built in. These things are deeply baked in due to how God fuels us throughout our life and through how God wires us, especially in the beginning of our lives. He made us into very different kinds of creatures, and the way he made us inclines the man to lead and inclines the woman to want a strong man that she can love and trust and follow. Here's the third thing in the grab bag about marriage. It's this. In marriage, oh, this is, I just have to pause. This one's going to be really hard for some of you, and nobody's telling you this, but if you're a Bible person, if you're into God's Word, and you want what's in God's Word, then you you have to go with this. God has established what I'm going to call rank in the family. Just like there's rank, like let's say between you and a police officer. If you're going down 95, you're going too fast, police officer pulls you over. Who outranks whom in that situation? Well, the police officer outranks you or me because that's a person who has an office. They have rank. Um, That police officer might be your next door neighbor. You might know he's not a very nice person. He's not even a very smart person. He's not not even a very capable person. But nonetheless, he outranks me now, so I submit to him because he's a police officer and he just pulled me over because I was going too fast. So rank doesn't mean anybody's better than anybody. Rank doesn't mean anybody's smarter than anybody. Rank doesn't mean anybody has any more value than anybody. Rank simply means that for the purposes of things functioning, God has established there is order There's authority, there's submission, there's rank, and there's rank in the Bible in marriage. This really comes out in the word that's repeated in four different passages. I already mentioned them. The Greek word hupatasso. The word hupatasso means stand yourself under or rank yourself under. So in other words, this is going to be strong for some of you, but if you want God's will, here it is. It's from the Bible. In four passages, you're told to rank yourself under him. In one of those, you're even given an example of Sarah, the mother of the righteous, uh, who even called her husband Abraham Lord. Yes, Lord. Even when he was asking her to do some kind of dicey, questionable things. But anyway, the Bible used this term, hupatasso. It means you're supposed to rank yourself under your husband. Okay, so he's over me in the context of the, the family here. You might be smarter than him. 
You might be uh, more godly than him. You might have more wisdom than him. You might be more principled. You might be all kinds of things more than him. And he's no better than you. He's not worth any more than you. He has no greater value than you. But you are to rank yourself under him because that's God's order for the Christian family. So Christian wives, just absorb that and love it and bless the Lord for it and thank him for it and say, yes, Lord, speak. Your servant hears. I want to rank myself under this man. By the way, it ought to be sobering for you if you're the guy. Well, God's given me a position, and so I'm responsible. You ought to feel the responsibility. I'm responsible to be the one who leads us to make this all really good for everybody, to make this all really healthy for everybody. I'm the one who is responsible. Here's a fourth thing in my little grab bag. I said this earlier, but I want to make it a point again so it stands out here. Men, when she bucks your legitimate leadership, if you give in and give in and tap out and wimp out and say yes when you didn't really mean yes, and if you admit to things she's accusing you of that you don't believe you really did wrong, but just to make peace, you take the easy route and say, yes, I did that wrong. I'm so sorry, when you really aren't sorry. If you do that, and if she notices you doing that, and she will— She notices she can easily submit you. She can easily tap you out. You are now, by definition, henpecked. And she will despise you. Interesting, isn't it, that when Paul's dealing with Christian marriages in Ephesians chapter 5, he ends it with, let the wife see that she respects her husband. You're not to get to a place where you despise him. You're not to get to a place where you think little of him. You're not to get to the place where you think, oh man, I wish I'd married a stronger man. By the way, let me take an aside. Can you hang on to where we are? I'll try to come back to the same place. But here's something interesting about marrying a stronger man. So sometimes guys say, and we mean this to honor our woman, we mean that it's just kind of a joke really, but sometimes guys say, oh man, when I married Debbie, I'm married to Debbie. Man, I really married up. So what we're saying is I, I got a better woman than I am. So, all right, that's a little humorous now and then, but I just want to say to you guys, don't overdo that. You're not really complimenting her when you do that because she wants to marry up, and that's in her by creation. She wants to marry a guy who can lead their marriage, and she can depend on him and rely on him to lead. She'd like him to have greater wisdom than she has. She'd like him to have greater love than she has. She wants to marry up. So don't ever use that one too much. But nonetheless, um, if, if uh, she's submitting you and submitting you and submitting you, you're by definition henpecked, and she's going to have a hard time respecting you. In fact, she might even get to the place where she belittles you in her thoughts and in her heart. She might belittle you vocally to her friends, and she might kind of despise you. By creation, she wants to be married to a strong man. So... Women, here's another grab bag item for the women. Before you marry a guy, before you let yourself fall in love with a guy, ask yourself, can I respect this man? Can I follow this man? Does he have the wisdom that could safely lead him and me into a healthy marriage? Could he redemptively deal with the inevitable conflicts and differences? Can I trust him for that? Will he be principled and not selfish? Will he give himself for me like Christ gave himself for the church? Will he wash me in the washing of water by the word, Ephesians chapter 5? Does he have the strength to lead me? 
Here's an interesting little piece of church history and an interesting little piece of biography about that. So the great uh, Puritan New England pastor Jonathan Edwards were in the 1700s. And he is, was said then by many, and he's said now by many still, to perhaps be the greatest mind ever grown on American soil. The guy was really brilliant. So he had some kids, and he had a daughter, and she was still single, and a guy came to be a suitor for Edward's daughter. And so he said, Mr. Edwards, can I marry your daughter? And Edward said, no. Why not? Because you can't handle her. Now, those are my words. I'm paraphrasing it, but that's what he said. You're not a strong enough guy to handle her because she's a very strong woman. And he turned the guy down. I don't know if it stayed that way. I don't know if he ever let her get married to him. But uh, you want to ask, does he have the strength to lead me? And can I respect this man? And here's a grab bag piece for the men. And men, before you fall in love with her, Before you commit to a woman in the holy covenant of marriage, you must be discerning, you must be asking, you must be determining, you must be figuring out, will this woman follow my leadership? Will she respect, will she even seek to encourage and strengthen me as the God-ordained head of the home as I seek to love her as Christ loved the church and give myself for her? Will she respect that? Will she dig that? Will she get that? Will she be happy to take up her God-assigned role to be submissive to my hopefully healthy, spirit-filled leadership? You've got to ask yourself, ask yourself this, does she love and embrace and receive and thank God for his design for marriage as revealed in the scriptures? And will she gladly follow in a principled and godly way? Back to the men again for a moment. You must look for a woman who loves what God says about marriage. Look for a woman who loves what God says about the woman's position and the woman's role in the marriage. Look for a woman who loves and embraces and delights and she reads it in her Bible and then she hugs her Bible and says, oh, I delight in the things of the Lord. You want to look for a woman who does that, which means the flip side of that is you've got to look for that now increasingly rare woman who has not been infected with the world's rejection of God's creation roles and of God's assigned creation or marriage roles as found in Scripture. You've got to look for a woman woman who doesn't find, who doesn't invent, who doesn't adopt not-so-clever ways of turning her submission into something else, anything else but real submission. You've got to look for a woman who doesn't find ways to get around, to subvert, who doesn't use the feminine toolbox that's available to her. If you use these tools, if you use these tactics, you can win, you can submit him, you can tap him out. But here's the second order bitter fruit of that. You'll despise him, so don't go there. Back to the men. I've lost track of the numbers, sorry. Back to the men. Here's another grab bag thing for the men. It's from 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and it's one Greek word. It's andridzomai, and the word comes into several... English words, and it means act like men. Literally, we might make it man eyes. Or here's a phrase we do use frequently, man up. Paul says, and it's God using Paul's heart and mind and pen, it's God God says to all the men in the church, and he actually says it to the women too, but I think especially to the men, God says man up. Now, that's interesting in these days of gender confusion and attacks on God's word and what it says about gender. Man up. That means we can know what a man is, by the way. 
that means we can identify, we can realize that there are characteristics of a man. There are things about a man's nature that we can identify, and they're not the same as the things we see in a woman's nature. He doesn't say human up because we all have the same things. He says man up because there are things that can be attributed to men that can't be attributed to women and vice versa, and we need all of the above. But he says to you, man up. He assumes that there are going to be things that are they're going to be hard. There are things in your marriage that are going to be hard. There are things that are going to be difficult. But listen, my brother in Christ, you covenanted before God and that company. You covenanted till death do us part. Don't even allow yourself to think the D word, divorce. Don't even allow yourself to think the to, to speak the D word unless you have those few legitimate biblical grounds and it really has come to that. Don't allow yourself to just easily throw in the towel. All right, I'm going to quit this thing. No, the Bible says to you, man up. Be strong. It's your responsibility to lead and to lead redemptively so the whole thing becomes beautiful and wonderful for everybody, and honoring to God. Back to the women again. So to you godly women, I want to encourage you to cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God, 1 Peter chapter 4. To cultivate that submission that the Bible describes in Ephesians, Colossians, Titus, and 1 Peter chapter 4. And that might mean, among other things, it's, it's, your part, it's part of your job to seek to strengthen, to encourage, to respect, to love the leadership of your husband as he leads wide, wisely and redemptively in the things of your marriage. Respect your man. Don't let things start to dig away at and diminish your respect for your man. That's a dangerous thing when that starts to happen. It's very important that you're able to respect your man. If you're starting to lose that, there's a red flag going up. There's a danger zone you guys are getting into, and you need to work on some things so that you can say, I respect that man. Men have rank. They need respect. Women are relational. They need love. That's an oversimplification, but all current psychology will agree with that and tell us, yes, those things are absolutely true. So that's it. I hope you liked it. I hope it's helpful to you, husbands and wives in Christ. But just before I let you go, let me remind you that Grounded comes out twice a month, and you can find it on Cornerstone Community Church Media and in CCC eNews. Hope you'll join me, and I even hope you'll share Grounded with a friend. Thank you. <laughs>